Hello, and welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. My name is Melissa Pitotti, and we're here to change our experience of power, culture, and well-being in aid organizations. Today, you'll hear me in conversation with Dr. Aisha Malik. I met her years ago at the headquarters of the World Health Organization, that's WHO, when she was embarking on a process that has resulted in the Mental Health at Work guidelines and policy brief that we're going to be talking about today. I've kind of been stalking her, and now we have her inner grasp, so I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Dr. Aisha Malik. Welcome. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So nice to have you. Um, I wanted to talk to you for a long time. Uh, I met you several years ago as you were in the beginning phases of developing what we now know to be the WHO guidelines on mental health at work. It was a really consultative process that came up with those. And there's a companion piece to the guidelines. I think it's called a policy brief. Is that right? So I've got yeah. both documents. I've 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 read the policy brief again today. It's 20 pages. I wasn't able to fully read the guidelines. It's a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> but I read them before in uh mm-hmm. I think when it came out, it came out at the end of September, right? Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Right. So I'd love just before we get started, um, just if you don't mind for our listeners who might not be familiar with you and your work, would you mind to introduce mm-hmm. yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, hello, everyone. My name is Aisha Malik, and I am a mental health specialist working in the Department of Mental Health and Substance Use at the World Health Organization. So I'm uh, previously by training, I have a doctorate in psychiatry and a doctorate in clinical psychology. And I have worked clinically in the areas of pediatrics, HIV and sexual health, and then working in the World Health Organization, I focus on various different areas, including mental health at work. Excellent. Do you mind to give us a backstory? Why did WHO decide to create these guidelines? And then I think ILO joined in on creating the policy brief that went in with them. Why, why, why did that come about? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I suppose one of the things, um, one of the things that we'd been thinking about is this idea that uh, mental health is something that can be addressed Mm -hmm. in more than just health settings. And we often make a call for this. Mental health is not something that only needs to be addressed within a health setting. There's places in the community that Mm -hmm. we can address mental health. So, for example, with young people, a really obvious environment that's talked about is schools, Mm -hmm. what schools need to do. And so for adults, where most adults spend uh, most of their awake time is at work. So, okay, the workplace looks like it's a context we should go into. But what's actually, what's the problem here? Is is there an issue? Is is this a public health issue that we need to focus on? And when we looked at the numbers, we realized that almost one in six working age adults Mm -hmm. had a mental disorder. Mm. And if you think about the fact that almost 60% of the world works, mm-hmm. we're talking about absolutely millions of people mm-hmm. who are experiencing difficulties with their mental health and who are of working age. So that says this is a significant public health issue. Mm-hmm. And there's a precedence um, that we had in our various international instruments that all said, hey, you know, we need to think about protecting mental health at work. Mm-hmm. We've got the WHO uh, comprehensive mental health action plan you've got the um 
WHO Global Strategy on Environment, Climate Change and Health. And you've got the ILO conventions as well, talking about protecting mental health at work. But mm -hmm. so little seemed to actually be happening. And we try mm. to look a little bit more into this, like what's going on? We knew some actors were making noise about this and people have been making noise about it for a long time. Uh, what we started to realize that, say, colleagues in, in the field of occupational health sometimes felt very uncertain about what actually works mm. for mental health, what's actually effective. Mm. And then discovering also that uh, there's a lot of noise in this area because it, it it's not just clinical mental health. We're also mm -hmm. talking about the well-being spectrum as well. Mm -hmm. And that means there's very little regulation mm. uh, in that area. So you've got all manner of products mm -hmm. out there being delivered or the workplaces are buying in mm -hmm. and no sense of if those are actually working or not so it's like okay there's a bit of an issue with what's potentially being delivered people might not know what's being delivered but we know we've got to do this mm -hmm. and at the end of the day yes there's the, there's the big famous figures that we throw out there if anxiety and depression which are two of the most uh, common commonly occurring mental health conditions are contributing to almost 12 billion lost productive days uh, working days every year that's a, that's a huge number of days and that's translating to this trillion dollar cost that mm. we're seeing to the global economy each year sure mm. mental health is costing workplaces it's costing the economy but th at the end of the day you as the person who works or is trying to work you, you you're struggling to get employed if you're living with a severe mental health condition because it's so stigmatized mm -hmm. When you're at work, you're not able to do it as well as you want to. You might have to take time off. Your self-esteem mm -hmm. is probably knocked back quite a lot from it. So there's a huge impact to the individual as well. And I think the kind of conflation of all of these factors made us go, let's look at what actually works for mental health in the context of work. It's time to do this. It's time to do this. And that was our background. Ah, nice. What works in the context of work? Mm -hmm. I like it. I mean, the next question I was going to ask is about what you would like people to know about the guidelines, but I want to butt into my own question <laughs> <laughs> because in your policy brief mm. it has very nice graphics. So it refers to, um, for example, the context, um, the prevalence of anxiety, depression, suicide, the costs. It's pretty um, remarkable. And you alluded to that in the beginning. Mm. Um, I'm very interested in looking at different levels of intervention. Um, a lot of the discussion yeah. in the humanitarian aid sector has been about um, providing individual aid workers with resilient support. So mm -hmm. can they, for example, PTSD is an issue. Can they get access to support if there's a, a critical incident? So it's kind of like providing support to people after they've been exposed and more and more discussion now about preventing um, issues by supporting um, things like mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mm. Um, but your, your policy brief has also really underscored the need for organizational level interventions that are looking at the risks at work, the mm -hmm. climate, and I would call that, I don't know if I'm not a um, scientist, that's a primary level intervention, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, providing um, kind of support to staff to prevent things could be a secondary intervention. And then actually pro providing support to staff who are obviously uh, struggling could be a 
tertiary mm-hmm. or third level, but the primary intervention is looking at the organizational context in which they work. Is that, do I have that? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's a really, really fair assessment. Um, the whole point of our policy brief that we worked with the International Labour Organization on was mm-hmm. to say, how do we translate this series of scientific recommendations into something that is a little bit more comprehensible and practical mm-hmm. or easy to pick up for mm-hmm. our primary audience, which are employers or people who are responsible for health and safety at work? And this is why our summary of our recommendations is exactly as you say. We've Mm -hmm. badged it as this. We need workplaces to, first and foremost, you have got to prevent people from experiencing the risks to their mental health at work, Mm -hmm. the undue risks. Mm -hmm. Of course, some workplaces or or work by its design Mm -hmm. is more challenging than others. For example, the humanitarian work, if you are involved in direct operations, Mm -hmm. you are going to encounter things in your line of work that I may not experience if I was working as, for example, a teacher, still another Mm -hmm. example of a very stressful job. Mm -hmm. But uh, some work by its design is, is difficult, but there are multiple areas within how an organization is set up that cause uh, a poor well-being. Mm-hmm. We have evidence on this. We mm-hmm. know that if people are uh, feeling like they, they don't have a lot of control over mm-hmm. what their job is, it affects mm-hmm. mental health outcomes. Mm-hmm. That if you don't have a lot of um, variety in the type of work that you do, mm-hmm. it affects mental health outcomes. That if your workload is very heavy, yeah. If you're under, uh, and hello, that's uh, the humanitarian world. If your workload is very heavy, if you've got short deadlines, if you're under a lot of pressure, that affects your mental health. Mm-hmm. If you um, are experiencing bullying, yeah. harassment, violence, these mm-hmm. are huge predictors of mm-hmm. if you're going to have poor mental health outcomes. So the first thing that we wanted to point out is prevent the risks where you can. Mm-hmm. You have to start with understanding what are the risks in your organization that your organization is able to then take action on. So that is that is step one. Whether you call it primary or not, actually that's a language thing, just depending on what field you come from. I know occupational health definitely use that structure. Uh, we, just, we just wanted to call it what it is, which is mm-hmm. prevent the risks. And the second level being, well, we're still in the organizational world. The second level being what we are recommending is that we think about protecting people's mental health. Mm-hmm. And the biggest area that we have focused in on is we need our managers. Anyone Mm -hmm. who is responsible for supervising another person Mm -hmm. needs to have some competency in being able to do that. Mm -hmm. And that competency applies a little bit to mental health, because what we found Mm -hmm. is managers who were, and this includes in the emergency services, managers who are trained Mm -hmm. to um, understand what does mental health look like or what does distress look like understand what is appropriate communication from them to their employee, mm-hmm. understand what are the basics that a manager can do to provide support. And it's not making managers therapists. It's just mm-hmm. you're doing your due diligence of mm-hmm. making sure your employee knows where they can go to get the help that they need. We found it was transformative for mm-hmm. managers. They Their knowledge increases, their, their stigmatizing attitudes change, mm-hmm. their behavior towards their employee changes. But not mm-hmm. only that, there's a slight hint in the evidence Mm -hmm. that it might actually impact employees' uh, stress levels, but we need to know a little bit more about that. But more importantly, we found actually 
when managers have gone through that training, mm-hmm. their employees are more likely to then go seek help um, for their mental health. And that is huge because that's what that's what this is all about, is making sure that people can be mobilized to get the help that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the protect and promote is is the kind of the, the stress, individual stress management stuff. Mm-hmm. But what we really learned from people's values and preferences is if you just offer stress mm-hmm. management and you don't think about the organization level, you don't think about your managers, mm-hmm. people are going to feel like you're blaming them. Yes. Their stress. Yeah. You, it is your fault that you are not resilient enough. Mm-hmm. And as a mental health expert, that is the most preposterous thing I've <laughs> ever heard. It just scientifically doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. You, you are not individually responsible for your state, but you can be someone that takes some action. But mm-hmm. that action also needs to come at other layers. Uh, on a global level, we, we know, for example, war impacts mm-hmm. people's mental health. We can't always stop war mm-hmm. uh, as mental health professionals. But if you are in occupational health, mm-hmm. you you have an environment, a relatively mm-hmm. relatively controlled environment in front of you, your workplace, where you can actually target the risks in it. Mm-hmm. you just need to know what those are so yes for, sh- for sure we're talking about prevent the risks mm-hmm. protect people's mental health largely through their managers and then mm-hmm. support people who actually have mental health conditions at work mm-hmm. that's through the reasonable accommodations supporting return to work etc mm-hmm. so, I really like that that's very consistent with the the core humanitarian standard mm-hmm. as it stands today Um, It has the commitment eight, which is about supporting your staff and volunteers to do their work effectively, treating them fairly and equitably. There's an indicator 8.9 that Mm -hmm. talks about duty of care, and it layers um, agency responsibility, manager responsibility, and individual responsibility. So it looks at it kind of comprehensively there. Mm -hmm. I, I was so pleased that the policy brief, it talks about organizational culture. Yeah and interpersonal relationships at work. Um, So on the organizational culture piece, it's flagging, what if you have unclear organizational objectives? What if there's poor communication? There's a culture that enables discrimination or abuse. In the core humanitarian standard, there are separate indicators that talk about having a culture of open communication, Mm -hmm. having a culture that welcomes feedback and complaints. So there are some things that um, connect there. And And I saw in the policy brief, what are some examples of organizational interventions? They talk about giving opportunities for meaningful consultation mm-hmm. and cooperation with the staff. Exactly. Or having frameworks. What do you do when there's unfair treatment or offensive behavior and abuse? Um, the interpersonal relationship at work, from, from my experience, is, is huge as well. And, and the, the policy brief mentions, what if people are feeling isolated What if they don't feel support from their supervisors or colleagues? What if the supervision, they even use the word authoritarian or poor line management? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so is there anything that really stood out for you as you were hearing the review of the evidence of kinds of interventions at the organizational culture, interpersonal relationships at work, Mm -hmm. anything that really resonated with you in terms of what what um, organizations could consider trying that they haven't tried yet? See, I'm going to give you an answer that you may not really want to hear. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the the examples that we've given in the policy brief are the nuggets that came out. And what we are really surprised by, Mm -hmm. especially, for example, with bullying and harassment, which is one of the biggest complaints 
inter difficult interpersonal relations at work is one of the biggest complaints in workplaces yeah. is yes you see from time to time people have conducted trainings on mm -hmm. on ethical behavior etc mm -hmm. at work but that's not the only solution and we were very surprised by how little direct evidence there was to say precisely what should you do okay. to deal with this issue at work and in fact um in our guideline mm -hmm. yes. we have a big menu of what were the research gaps yes i we saw that by. and i think i believe we named uh, uh issues such as bullying as one of them mm -hmm. um this idea that one of the big issues that we have with the field is that we know these are the risks there is so enough evidence now Yes. These are the risks. And in fact, in, in the humanitarian sector, there's been a good deal of work on these are the problems that humanitarians, whether international or national, face mm -hmm. yes. that affects their mental health. And my call now is to say, OK, that's great. OK, we, we mm -hmm. figured that one out. Please now start <laughs> focusing on what to do. How do yes. you intervene with these risks? Demonstrate to us the evidence yeah. on that. Yes, because we know as a whole organizational mm -hmm. approaches, when you include the employees themselves, when you when you take a participatory approach mm -hmm. and make joint decisions on how do you tackle some of these risk areas mm -hmm. that works. We know that that works. Mm -hmm. That is that is critical. So many leaders often feel like they have to come up with solutions themselves or that it's yes. only that senior management thinking about okay, how do we deal with this issue now of for example flexible mm -hmm. work hours it's like the answer may actually be in your rather large workforce yes uh, they will have they will have considerations for you and including them all the way from conception through to mm -hmm. implementation is critical but the the big call that we want to make here when it comes mm -hmm. to these risks is mm -hmm. we know the risks now mm -hmm. go forward and do good clean work on mm -hmm. what actually works to address them and tell us about it that needs to be the next step because the the guideline from mm -hmm. WHO's perspective is not a static product. It gets yes. updated every, on average, five years. Okay. Um, and the update is dependent on mm -hmm. the evidence increasing or changing. So that is why there is such a strong call on what more needs to be addressed. And I'd, I'll probably throw in there. We were very surprised mm -hmm. that there was lots, there's lots out there for humanitarians on what the mm -hmm. problems are and what the yes. prevalence of issues are. Yes. And very little published in the scientific yes. literature on mm -hmm. we effectively applied these strategies and this is what benefited humanitarians. At, at the end of the day, we know that the actual intervention mm -hmm. for mental health works regardless of what population you are. Mm -hmm. the, the core ingredients of an intervention work regardless of who you are. It's how you apply that intervention that differs between work settings. So with humanitarians, we're thinking about pre-deployment, during mm -hmm. deployment, post-deployment. Mm -hmm. um, we need to know more about how mm -hmm. we do this, what needs to be adapted. Um, and the fact that humanitarians are not a homogenous group. You've got Correct. people in direct operations. You've mm -hmm. got people in, ad for example, administration who might not yes. be deployed, but are still subject to the heavy workloads mm -hmm. uh, because of the nature of what the work is. So mm -hmm. we have a lot more to think about for the humanitarian sector, especially for national humanitarian staff as well. Yes, it's a 90% of the workforce. Mm -hmm. That's something we see in the humanitarian sector. There's such different experiences depending on where and when and how you're, you're working. But at the end of the day, almost, I don't want to be universal, but 
people are suffering no matter where. <laughs> in many cases, uh, they can be suffering, even if they're in the nicest headquarters mm-hmm. location. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some indicators that show not all is well. Exactly. Um, there. So this is a this is clearly then after such a rigorous two year process, it's clear that there's more that needs to be done in terms of looking at the evidence of what interventions are the most effective, including in the humanitarian sector. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something I am very interested in as well, uh, because we're getting people around the sector saying, OK, now I get it. I have a problem. My organization has a problem. Mm-hmm. But what do we do about it? And there's a lot that's happening. There's a lot of really interesting interventions happening, but it's not necessarily being captured and tracked and looked at. So I'm interested in a 10-year longitudinal study that's looking at, okay, let's uh, let's provide, for example, participatory approaches to mm. crowdsourcing our solutions. Mm. Um, in many cases, the wisdom of the crowd speaks uh, volumes. Um, if we have these um, these kind of spaces or fora for people to express their needs and to come to perhaps mutually beneficial strategies to meet the needs mm. uh, might be quite powerful. Um, also looking at across organizations, there have been some innovations that have been tried. Could those be replicated or learned from? So, mm. so I, that's something I'm quite interested in. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'd love to jump in on that particular point you made there, because for me, it really speaks to an issue And the issue is you can't test or look at these organizational approaches um, using a a short-term, simple methodology. It's not easy. We have to think about different ways to produce Mm -hmm. quality science, but thinking about other methodology. For example, Mm -hmm. longitudinal. It might take time Mm -hmm. to actually see the impact on the workforce when you apply some of these changes, particularly if they're at the strategy or policy level in an organization. So I think that's a it's a great approach. And it's something that our guideline development group really thought about because they said, hey, there is so much evidence out there in an RCT form Mm -hmm. for things like uh, stress management interventions. And that's because those kinds of interventions lend themselves so easily that type of testing Mm -hmm. Uh, and we need to think and the same with manager training it lends itself very easily to that type of testing and we do need to think about other methods uh, when we're doing these organizational approaches and especially because in the real world you're not ever just going to apply one intervention in a workplace we hope not because we tell everyone to be comprehensive (laughs) as possible what happens when you're doing multiple different things at once we need to I think there's a lot of work that needs to go into innovative ways to test this, but still to test it in a high quality way. Now, you use the acronym that some people might not know, RCT. That's all randomized control trial. Randomized control trial. But I heard that another approach for this kind of thing could be something called action research. Yeah. Um, is that something that might be helpful? It's it's more of a participatory approach to doing kind of change, to looking at how change manifests? It could be. So I don't know. I'm not an expert on action research, but from what I understand about it, it is, uh, yeah, as you say, participatory. It's iterative. The yes. idea that you test for a little bit. OK, how's this going? Is it working? Is it not working? What do we need to change next? Mm-hmm. And to me, that is much more a uh, real world implementation. Yeah. And I think as long as there's and what's the what's the positives, what's the negatives? The negatives is from the from a purely from a pure scientific approach, it makes it, it starts to make it tough to see precisely what led to what change. Yes. 
But at the end of the day, um, one of the tough uh, scenarios that is coming up or conversations is workplaces uh, struggle to buy in to the idea of being part of research. Yes. Um, and they may not struggle to buy in to be part of research that is uh, reflecting real mm. world implementation a bit more. Um, so I don't know a whole lot about action research. I think mm-hmm. from what I understand about it, it makes sense in context. And I think mm-hmm. maybe a discussion that needs to happen going mm-hmm. forward um, with different members of the community uh, mm-hmm. is what are the methods that we should be using yes. um, to feel confident that once we've finished our um, intervention or once we've finished our multi-layered intervention, that we feel pretty confident that when we get the outcomes that we, we've measured, uh, that we know what has or hasn't contributed to that. So that's probably a, it's a conversation, I think, between implementers, between the scientific mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would love to see that conversation happening. And um, I think the Humanitarian Partners in HNPW, Humanitarian Networks and Partnerships Weeks, is an opportunity because we'll have people from around the sector who are um, working in different contexts coming to Geneva. So you'll have people who might be willing to be part of such a thing, um, in a sense, be experimented on or be part of the experiment. We've got uh, a lot of people who might have some know-how on methodology that could come. And then uh, we have a lot of people coming who provide different kinds of interventions or supports. Um, All in one place could be a nice time to just to in terms of iterative thinking just bounce off some ideas of what this could look like for a long-term approach that's meeting different needs and hopefully can be helpful for the community as a whole when you're coming up with your Mm. guideline revision in five or ten years Mm. I I think that sounds really exciting nice well I'm sorry I derailed our questions that I had handed you in advance that's okay This but, uh, is managing pressure on the spot. <laughs> I apologize. I think we're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, <laughs> so if we go back to the questions I had handed you, is there anything else you would like mm. people to know about these documents? Yeah, it's a, no, it's a good question. I think for for our from our perspective, the the guideline it, it itself is really telling us what works. It's very precise. It's what works. And what outcomes does it actually work for as well? Because I think sometimes we often see an overinflation mm-hmm. of what certain interventions can achieve. And mm-hmm. so we were really purposeful when we said, well, this particular intervention works for these particular outcomes. So that's your guideline. But the policy brief is the product that we want to promote as go to go to the policy brief. It puts everything in context for you mm-hmm. and it puts everything in context of uh, the the recommendations and conventions of the International Labour Organization, who of course the body, the authority on labour. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that perspective. But if you are interested in the in the science of it, if you are interested in what are the kind of uh, outcomes we need to be thinking about for ourselves, uh, what are the research gaps? That's the guideline for you. Uh, one of the messages I think that's maybe important to flag is, you know, there is a real push um, in the humanitarian world mm-hmm. for individual stress management. Mm-hmm. And, and we know stress management is effective. We know mm-hmm. it's effective. It does. It does reduce symptoms, uh, depending on what precisely it's been designed to do. Uh, and it can help some work related outcomes, but it cannot be the only thing 
mm-hmm. that workplaces are implementing. So I've already spoken about how, from a values and preferences perspective, mm-hmm. it, if you if we want to talk about what's going to impact the culture at work, making employees feel as though they are to blame yes. for their mental health is not a good way to go, which is mm-hmm. why we always say comprehensive. But the analogy uh, that I can think of is, you know, if you have a minor cut, mm-hmm. you want to put a clean it, put a bandage on it. But if you happen to be in such a scenario where you're going to repeatedly keep getting minor cuts, you can't get that, that one plaster is only going to do so much. You need to be thinking a lot more mm-hmm. around how do we stop this? Um, and that's what I want people to think about with mental health at work. It's not just uh, individual stress management. It is tackling things at the organizational level. It is addressing this issue um, with managers and for the humanitarian world, we have a lot of gaps that we need to fill to understand better mm-hmm. what works. There's a lot that the humanitarian field can borrow mm-hmm. from the literature on health workers. There are mm-hmm. some parallels in some circumstances, um, some parallels in the adversity that's faced. So there is a lot out there for human, uh, health workers. And I think we can be in, inspired by that. But at the end of the day, the humanitarian world is its own beast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's And it's very... Uh, unique in how it's organized and and how and when you deliver care and that's a gap that's a gap that we need to think about a bit more excellent i i want to commend you for sticking through with your tenacity getting through the very rigorous process to get these out and then to make the documents so user friendly especially the policy mm-hmm. brief with a nice infographics um and it's very clearly organized. People can kind of zoom if you're from a government or if you're from an organization that's an employing organization, um, or if you're an individual, there's even parts for civil society. So it's very mm-hmm. clear where you can go. A lot of the people that I, I talk to that are interested in these things are feeling quite overwhelmed in general um, because the problems are so big and um, there still remains a lot of um, a lot to be clarified going forward. Um, so some people have said, I just don't know what is the next step. <laughs> so I thought maybe one thing is people can sit with a policy brief mm-hmm. and read it and mm-hmm. think about how it applies to them. Mm-hmm. And what if they even had a conversation about it in their workplace? Yeah. Absolutely. Just, just um, what, are, what do we think about this? One thing we like to try based on this, I'm sure they should do more, but I mean, is there anything like that you would like to consider recommending for someone who might feel a bit stressed in general, what they can do? Yeah, so I think you've proposed multiple different audiences <laughs> there. So I'm, I'll start with the with the person picking it up and considering in the workplace and actually people have been picking the product up already yes and thinking about what does this mean for our work setting and um the way that we envisage it being i mean it can be used in multiple different ways but the way we envisage it is um picking it up and saying okay we we must have some form of occupational safety and health plan uh, for Mm -hmm. our workforce did we factor in mental health into that plan in the way that's advised by the guidelines and the policy brief. Or we may have our own mental, we may have an independent mental health plan for our workforce. Have Mm -hmm. we taken these effective approaches into account? Are we using our budget on things that maybe 
we don't know if they're working as well as we want them to. And then, okay, it seems that what we really need to do is take a moment and say, do we know what's affecting our workforce? Because what the policy brief describes and what the guideline describes as well is check the risks, Mm -hmm. find out what's impacting your workforce and then go from there Mm -hmm. on planning what you need to do. Because the policy brief doesn't just talk about these interventions that you and I have been talking about here, the organization of the manager training, mm-hmm. return to work, reasonable accommodations. It goes beyond that. It mm-hmm. goes beyond that to say there are other things that need to be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, is mental health sufficiently factored into benefits uh, for your workforce? What's the compliance? Who's accountable here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are you actually thinking about rights-based issues uh, when it comes to mental health? Are you including people with mental health conditions uh, as part of your workforce and how are you applying adjustments uh, for them so there's so many other considerations now that's the part where you want to avoid getting into overwhelming uh, the staff member who's going yeah okay gosh we have quite a lot to to deal with here but I think using it as a tool um, to discuss or look at what your existing plans are at work that relate to the welfare of employees is a good first step Oh, that's a great way to end it. Thank you so much, Dr. Aisha Malik. And uh, best of luck to you as you carry forward. I know people have been picking it up um, and people will continue to pick it up. And I think it is a big milestone for the community. So thank you for everything you have done. You're very welcome. Um, really nice to talk to you today. I always enjoy my conversations with you, Melissa. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Dr. Aisha Malik of the World Health Organization. I encourage you to talk about this guidance and policy with your teams. And if you wouldn't mind to review this podcast in the link below in the show notes, I would be very grateful. It would help others learn about the content and connect us to other people who might be interested. A big thanks to our editor, Ziada Abayid, the CHS Alliance members, and to all of our supporters. We will soon be back with another episode exploring embodied change. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.